Welcome to Cultural Technologies. I'm your host, Bernard Dionysus Gagan. Today we're talking with Stephen Shaviro, the DeRoy Professor of English at Wayne State University. Um, thank you for joining us today. Good to be here. So, um, Professor Shaviro is in town uh, here in Berlin for the Post-Cinematic Perspectives Conference uh, that was put together this past week by uh, Lisa Okerval and Chris Tediasukamana. Um, that was held by the FU, the Free University, and the Institute for Cultural Inquiry. Um, I had the pleasure of hearing his talk there, uh, which we've also recorded and will be released sort of uh, in tandem with this interview. Uh, and he was talking about some of his recent work on post-cinema and also on non-continuity in contemporary cinema. Is, is that a fair... Post, I like to say, I like post, I say post-continuity. Post-continuity. Um, so one of the things we're going to try to do today is break down some of these different terms and concepts around cinema, post-cinema, continuity, non-continuity, post-continuity, um, and one of our reference points will be uh, his book, uh, Post-Cinematic Affect, which came out... 2010. 2010, zero books. And uh, you also have um, a sort of work in progress. Uh, do you have a tentative title for that? Post-Continuity is my next book on film, which is still in progress. So we are kind of uh, straddling the work which is out, and I think it's circulated really widely, The and the kind of work to come, so maybe we can get a preview of that. Um, so, <clears throat> in part because uh, I think Stephen is especially, you know, one of the characteristics of your writing, your blogging, is that, um, you know, you're, you're frequently working with, say, a lot of philosophical and technical problems concerning the humanities, concerning film studies, and yet you're also, I would say, really apt to kind of boiling them down to a kind of key problem you're interested in talking about and that interests a broader audience. One of the things I thought we could do is start out just by talking about a couple of the terms you've been using, okay. what they mean. Um, and also you can tell us if, if since 2010 if these terms have maybe morphed um, mm -hmm. in terms of what you're interested in. Um, so starting with the, this concept of post-cinematic uh, affect, um, obviously... In the recent, in the recent, say, last ten or fifteen years, we've heard a whole lot of terms attempting to deal with changes in media culture. So there's notions of new media, uh, digital humanities is really hot at the moment, digital cinema, screen cultures, media convergence, and these are all terms that have been employed to try to somehow designate sort of current and historical relations between different media platforms. Um, could you say a little bit about what you're trying to get at with a term like? post-cinema or post-cinematic, and why this might be useful and different from, say, other appellations for these phenomena. Okay, well, I mean, it has a certain specific focus. Yeah. So post-cinematic doesn't refer to the entire media landscape. Mm -hmm. It refers in part to what's happened to cinema in recent years. Mm -hmm. But there's several ways to think about this. One is that media, there, certain media are dominant at certain times, and then they're often replaced by other media, which take over domination and the earlier media then as Marshall McLuhan always said to get repurposed so and the 20th century is often said to be the century of cinema 
That's not entirely true because though cinema was the dominant medium for the middle of the century, in the latter part of the 20th century, television and video kind of took over from, from cinema. But cinema was still a kind of more prestigious form. It's only recently that, on the one hand, you could say that television has really been taken more seriously than cinema. And I'm thinking of something like that in the 1970s, the, cor- the films people talked about were things like The Godfather and Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. In the past decade, people have talked about um, The Wire and The Sopranos much more than they've talked about any movies which deal with similar themes. And there's a kind of cultural shift. And, of course, television was already very big economically in the 1970s, but cinema was still maybe the most taken seriously. Mm-hmm. That kind of has shifted. And what's happened... So there's a certain sense... Um, when a medium, it doesn't necessarily change formally, but it often does change in some of its forms, and it certainly gets repurposed. It's, I mean, if you think of radio, before television, radio was a very big medium. Radio was the most important medium alongside cinema in the first half of the 20th century. After television, television took over a lot of things from radio, like all the kinds of dramas which became the various television dramas and comedies and things like that. Radio got repurposed, so radio now for the last 20, 30 years has been more something people listen to in their cars. Mm -hmm. And so you have things like talk radio, news radio, and as well as certain types of music radio people to listen to in their cars. Of course, that's now changing because of digital media and the internet and the increasing wireless accessibility of, of the net. So so all this is probably still changing. I'm not sure what radio will be like or even if there will be broadcast radio in another 10 years. But the same thing's kind of happened to film. On the one hand, film technology has been totally revolutionized digitally in the last 20, 25 years. Um, all aspects of the film are now done on computers. And this refers to computer-generated imagery instead of making models or projections or things like that. It refers to editing, which nobody uses an editing table anymore, where they literally cut and paste bits of celluloid and put them together, but they do it digitally. Um, But increasingly now, digital cameras, digital video cameras are being used instead. So film has gradually but quite decisively been changed in terms of how it's made and how it's projected and how it's seen. It's certainly seen many more theaters now are having digital projection instead of using 16 or 35 millimeter analog film. And plus we get films in many more ways due to video recorders and the internet and streaming and downloading and as well as DVDs and Blu-rays and all those kinds of things. So in all contexts of production, reception, etc., film has changed. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that film might not look the same, more or less. And in fact, people continue to make films which don't look that different from films, say, in the look and feel is not that different from films in the 1970s or the 1980s. Nonetheless, I think under the impact of our technologies of digitization and the way in which we have instantaneous information and multiple channels and everything that's happened with the digital and communications revolutions of the last 20 or 30 years, our sort of expectations have changed, and many films have, in fact, changed formally in ways which, which come to grips with or are influenced by these other changes. And, of course, it's not just technology. It's also politics, economics, and society, which have profoundly changed in various ways. And I think film is, is reflecting this. In terms of my scholarship, a lot of scholars are working on new digital media, on everything from Internet communications, chat rooms, um, instant messaging, mobile phones, 
the way in which data is accumulated every time we, we log on to Facebook or even just every time we, we do a search on Google or do anything online. Um, there's a whole infrastructure which is completely new and doing all kinds of different things. Um, I'm kind of interested, partly because in certain ways of an old-fashioned esthete, um, I'm interested in, in the ways in which film as an older medium, as a medium which is no longer as dominant as it was 50 or 75 years ago, is changing in reflection to or in relation to these changes happening in other media as well as in society in general. Mm -hmm. So when I think of post-film as being kind of post-cinematic, it means I'm looking at things which still are more or less films, even if they're shot digitally and distributed on the internet instead of being shot with old film cameras and shown only in movie theaters, but which still are in some way are still films because they have, they're about the same length of time, they have the same kinds of narratives and so on and so forth. And I'm interested in how the films are, how films are changing. I'm also actually interested in music videos, which strike me as a very interesting hybrid medium, which has relation to film and television as well as to electronic and popular music, but which is articulated in a, in a different way. Um, it's, it was too much for me to study all these things, and because of my own cinephilia, my own love of movies, basically, I've been focusing more on how they relate to these all these technological and social, political, economic changes. Mm -hmm. So then, um, just to kind of yeah. recapitulate what you're saying, so then the notion of post-cinema... Um, doesn't it's it's no simple designation of what comes after cinema. Well, it is. I mean, it's part of what comes after. I, I like. I maybe I overly like the post prefix. Yeah. We had postmodernism. We had poststructuralism, and there are a lot of post. Now I'm introducing post cinema, post continuity, and other things. There's a problem with that. It can it's too fa It can be too facile. But I think it's the notion that what comes after is still related to what it's changing away from. So. Mm -hmm. Unlike postmodernism, which has became way too overused a term, but postmodernism had a certain relation to modernism, yeah. which we which originally was what happened now, but then we understood as a past movement. It's not completely divorced from it; it marks radical changes from it, but it's still kind of referring back to it. Mm -hmm. So, in the same way, I think I'm interested in media which are still, in some way, part of the cinema or are cinematic in certain ways, or but but have changed the way in which they are. So then we have the other term from your 2010 book, Affect. Um, and part of the reason I want to ask you about this specifically is precisely because it's been, it's been a very widespread term in the humanities in the past, again, decade or so. Yeah. Um, and you could say almost feel sometimes as if the notion of affect itself has undergone a kind of affective and critical inflation. Um, so, you know, I have a kind of three-part question for you. Okay. Um, which would be one... Um, what do you have in mind with the term affect, you know, and yeah. what you have in mind would also mean, you know, what kind of work do you, do okay. you see the term doing? And to what extent do you see your invocation of affect being, say, working with or distinguishing itself from this broader, okay. say, affective term in the humanities? Yeah. Okay, well, there is, as you said, a broader a kind of affective term in the, in the humanities. People are paying attention to what goes on in certain levels, which are not necessarily those of explicit consciousness or of explicit meanings. So in general, affect is related to things like emotion or feeling. So, and part of the idea is just that you might think one thing cognitively in terms of concepts and meanings and yet feel something very differently. Um, this seems apparent in 
the way in which everything works, the way in which advertising works, the way in which politics works. In the 1980s, poll after poll in the United States showed that the vast majority of people didn't agree with Ronald Reagan's programs and actually agreed with much more with liberal democratic programs. And yet, Ronald Reagan got overwhelmingly re-elected, was overwhelmingly loved, and was one of the most popular presidents in U.S. history. And this was something operated on the level. He made people feel good. There was a certain feeling connection with him, which is what allowed him to do all the things that he did, which I think had horrible consequences and which I think uh, vast majorities opposed on their merits. But they felt good about him, and so they voted for him and supported him and were willing to accept his proposals, even when, if you asked them in a purely rational frame, they'd say no to those proposals. So I think we're starting to realize that affect or feeling or emotion is a big factor in how people react to the world, how they certainly how they react to media. Again, a lot of mainstream work has in the past has too narrowly defined cognition, meaning how we think rationally or think in terms of concepts. Um, and you can see this in a lot of things. For instance, Marxists for much of the 20th century talked about ideology, that people had false beliefs. And the idea was sort of if you corrected their false beliefs about the world, then they w would act differently and support different political programs and so on. But it's not really that simple because because it's not just that people have cog have you know conceptual beliefs that are you know divorced from reality. Though men, we all do, I think, to some extent, nobody sees or can anybody who claims to see reality totally clearly should be distrusted because it means that they're not aware of or not willing to own up to the way in which nobodies can be. Mm -hmm. And okay, but. Um, that it wasn't a matter of believing the wrong thing or if people believed that something which was counterfactual, it again had its roots in, you know, sort of much more diffuse kinds of feelings. So rationality and things like that is a very specialized and very narrow form of thinking. Thinking involves all kinds of other things. And even rationality is not very well defined as being just one thing. Is rationality how you decide what is good in life or is hash rationality how you decide which can have juice to get in the store, or soda to get in the store, or, I mean, is my dog being rational when he is able to ask to go outside so that he can go to the bathroom? I mean, all these things seem like they have something to do with rationality, but rationality itself is not a clear concept, and large parts of our mental, of human mental functioning, let alone that of animals and other beings, doesn't seem to be rational and seems to be driven by feelings. So... When we talk about affective turn in the humanities, it's partly just trying to account for that and feeling that other forms of interpretation to you know, find the hidden meanings, find the ideological biases in, in, in works of art or in discourses or in social practices were too narrow. They were missing too much of what is going on. Mm -hmm. Now, affect itself is a slightly unusual word compared to emotion or feeling. And it's partly been used for reasons which are both historical and conceptual. So... Um, many people distinguish between affect and emotion. In the se and the sense of that is an emotion is something very clearly delineable. I'm angry, or I'm ecstatically happy, or I'm really, really sad. But there's a kind of, this, the, the idea is that there's a kind of more diffuse background of those, and that, again, it's, it's working in our mind before it maybe enters into consciousness as a particular emotion. And I mean, this, I think, goes back at least to William James 125, 135 years ago, who said, basically, James's theory of emotions was basically that 
I don't feel um, my body all tensing up and and my fists swollen because I'm angry. My anger really is the same thing as those physiological changes. So it's not that I have a mental thing which is separate from the body and then the body reacts in certain ways. It's almost that the emotion involves not just what I think, but it equally much involves my physiological reaction. So if you're, some, you're, you're anxious and your stomach is churning with anxiety, the anxiety is the stomach churning as much as it is a certain idea you have in your mind, and the two really can't be separated. And again, this goes with the general 20, you know, 19th through and since century belief that um, we can't really just separate body and mind. But what that kind of means also is that, again, affect may be, you, is often used to designate an earlier stage of this. We have things going on originally that are fairly diffuse and unclear. It's only subsequently, just as a lot of our feelings are pre-cognitive or pre-rational, so even these feelings themselves have a state in which you know, vague things are happening to us, happening in our bodies, happening in our, in our brains, and we're feeling them in a more diffuse way before we feel them in a very more specific way. So that's what it basically means to me. I mean, there are more particular reason, philosophical reasons. Affect is a term which has goes back to Latin affectus, which is used by Spinoza. Mm-hmm. And so there's certain philosophical precedents which go through Spinoza in the, in the 17th century and on to Gilles Deleuze in the 20th century, and people have been very influenced by that. That's one strain in affective theory. But again, it's, it, I just use it more generally mm-hmm. to see this whole field of things which are happening with and to us and inside us, which mm-hmm. we don't necessarily apprehend with total clarity and don't and d- doesn't necessarily conform to what we rationally think about ourselves. But what that means also is that there's a lot of stuff going on in us, which, I mean, cognitive science has shown how much of our brain activity is not conscious, and the consciousness sort of comes at the end. And again, I think we need a larger understanding of subjectivity, experience, things like that, than one which just identifies them with consciousness. It's kind of like you know somebody you're, somebody who drives every day to work for forty years. You might start driving, and then you might not remember you're going someplace else and turn you know where you usually go. And this is something which happens very commonly. And what's sort of happening is we're not really conscious of the driving because it's become a habit, because it's so ingrained, because we do it so well, if then it's so often it becomes something we're not actively paying attention to. And you might actually you might actually be paying attention, you know, to not have an accident of where other cars are. But you're not really paying attention to your route, so you turn the way you habitually do. And that's a kind of example of how much of what we do, even though we pay attention to it in a certain mm-hmm. sense, is not really driven by consciousness. And so this whole awareness of non-conscious basis of our mental life mm-hmm. is part of it. And also, and this relates even more to our new technologies: the fact that we now have all these computational technologies, which work at a much faster level at microseconds than our conscious minds do. And then but it feeds it gives us information, feeds into what we do and what we're conscious of. So everything what we're conscious of seems to rely on this much broader base of both emo- of both things in our mm-hmm. biological bodies and minds and in the technology we use. So <coughs> would that would that then suggest do you think uh, affect is um, has a very has a kind of privileged relationship to what you've been talking about in terms of the post cinematic. Well, I think I don't know. It, I mean, I'm thinking. I'm, so I'm adapting from abstract theory, which a lot of people are doing throughout the humanities, and thinking about film, and particularly about these changes in recent movies and and genres spin off from the movies, and how they work in terms of the, these feelings and affects. 
In other words, I want to talk, partly I want to talk in a very formalist way. What, what are these movies doing? How are they edited? Mm-hmm. What kind, how do they use color? Very, you know, very, things which we kind of observe. But at the same time, I don't think those can be translated to fixed meanings, but they sort of relate back to a whole nexus of feelings or affects or a general kind of background or overall sense of what's happening, which, again, I think is different now than it was 30 years ago because life's been sped up, because we have all these new devices, because the economy's changed for all these reasons. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking... So I think affect can be talked about in, in not just in art, but in anything in our mm-hmm. social and personal lives. But I'm um, thinking, of, thinking of the role of affect in relation to these new technologies and new forms which are mm-hmm. occurring in, in cinema. And um, so, you know, one of the things that came up during the conference, uh, certainly in, I think in your talk, in Lisa Okerval's talk, in Shane Denson's talk, was um, at least what I understood as being an implication that there's something about, say, the shifting dynamics of network cultures, of uh, mm-hmm. global neoliberal capitalism that um, maybe has a particular investment in affect, right? That's different than what you yeah. might find in a contained cinema that's inside of a box that you enter and leave. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that's true? Is that Yes. I mean, well, again, there... That goes back to sort of more general claims that have been made recently for affect theory. I'm not sure how they're specifically what I'm doing. But yes, I mean, part of the idea is that, I mean, again, political ideologies and, you know, consumer decisions have always been based on, you know, stirring up people's emotions. But this maybe is happening in a new way with new technologies as, and also with the kind of global reach of capitalism today. And... What I think it has to do with is just, on one hand, the way in which, I mean, 50 years ago or 75 years ago, they'd sell products based on an advertising would try to give you a certain experience which you'd associate with a product, you know. Um, a Westinghouse refrigerator was reliable, wouldn't break down, it sort of connoted, you know, a, a stable home life or something like that. Mm-hmm. But now, it's sort of, I mean, that's become so exaggerated, it's more like, um, do you really buy, an, do I have an iPad instead of another brand of tablet because... Apple's brand is real, Apple's hardware and software are really better, or is it because I've been seduced by the kind of, you know, having Apple products is, is correlated with feeling a certain way? Um, it's kind of hip, it's kind of means you're edgy or in front of everybody else, even though, you know, you know, it's ironic that so many millions of people now all feel they're in front of everybody else. But the point is, a lot of sale, you know, consumerism today is based less on functionality than on. You know a certain connotation, emotional connotation. So it sort of shifted from you buy this brand because you know they're reliable or because they connote solidity and performance, and more like the, in effect, the kinds of general sensation of what kind of person you are is being itself commodified and sold. I'm buying, you know, being a kind of urban hipster by buying Apple products or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that seems to me to be a shift. I mean, it's sort of like which one serves the other. It used to be that the kind of feeling served the product, and now it's almost mm-hmm. like the product is sold as an adjunct to mm-hmm. giving us these feelings. And that sort of relates to the way in which more and more aspects of life have become commodified and become you know, things which don't just exist sort of in public or in common, but are purchased in certain ways. But that also relates to the fact that under new technologies, marketing has many ways to manipulate us more than they had before. 
in the 1950s, there was all this worry about subliminal advertising, that hidden messages would be put in media. And those worries proved to be fairly unfounded, but, but now we actually do something like that in a much more intense way because every time you know Google tracks every single thing I do online or Facebook and, and they have these data and the data are sold to advertisers and you know, I get targeted spam and all this kind of stuff, it's sort of like, and, and the very fact that it's technologically happening in such a, fa- such a fast way, it, you know, it overwhelms me before I even have time to become conscious of it. Mm-hmm. So and a lot of, that's not original to me. A lot of media theorists have talked about that. But I'm interested in the way in which, not that necessarily that film is necessarily just an adjunct of trying to sell us more stuff, aside from you know, selling the film itself, but that in the way that film is trying to deal with this as an increasing aspect of our experience, not just in content, but in the way the films themselves work formally. So one of, um, one of the terms you introduced, you, we mentioned it earlier, I think, in this conversation, but one of the terms you introduced in your lecture was post-continuity. Um, you're saying post-continuity as opposed to non-continuity, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, as I mentioned, people can download uh, uh, one iteration or another of uh, your talk on this, which will be sort of posted alongside with this podcast. Um, I mean, so I'm not going to unpack the whole yeah. argument. I probably couldn't. Um, although briefly, uh, as I understood it, part of what you're examining is the way in which, say, intensified processes of editing... Uh, themselves, you know, of the sort we might find in Michael Bay's films or in uh, Harmony Korean Spring Breakers, themselves have become so intensified to not simply challenge or upset traditional continuity, traditional space, but to completely have a a break with the experiences of continuity. Um, Could you, could you talk a little Mm -hmm. bit about both what you have in mind with post-continuity and to what extent it's, say, a function of post-cinema. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, continuity, like continuity editing, has particular meaning in, in film studies. And traditionally, I mean, they're kind, they're kind of rough and ready rules, which are never legislated, but which have generally been followed and still are very often today, of how you put a cinematic or televisual scene together. Um, you know, and it's something I always teach my students in introduction, introduction to film. You see a crowded cafe, you see Humphrey Bogart sitting at a table, he's glancing and he's looking in a certain direction towards the scene. Why do who is he looking at? Well, the next shot shows Lauren McCall sitting at another table in the cafe. Then the next shot of that, she, but it shows the whole cafe, but she's exactly the center. The next shot after that, we go much closer to her table. And then, you know, various things happen, and then she's sort of looking off screen. And the way she's looking corresponds to the way that Bogart's looking. They're sort of looking in opposite directions. And what happens is that the film makes, gives us a strong sense that Humphrey Bogart and Lauren McCall are looking at each other, even though they never even appear in the same shot during this scene. They only meet in person and appear together on screen later in the movie. So um, the movie I'm talking about is Howard Hawks to have and have not, but I mean, it could be any traditional Hollywood movie. And this is extended in other ways. In, even in films got more violent and more disjunctive and faster editing, but even, say, in the 1970s, when you have, a, if you see a Sam Peckinpah action sequence with lots of violence, you can actually tell, if you take bother to slow it down and look at it shot by shot, you can actually tell where everybody's positioned in relation to everybody else, what the geography is. Um, you know, the directions make sense, the geography makes sense. And this, all these are, continu- are rules of continuity, so there are particular ways that directors can do this. And in fact, it's done in most films 
even if it's not done skillfully, at least creates a certain degree of coherence. I mean, so it's sort of like almost anybody can do it, but it's still there's a difference between just doing it adequately and doing it in a genius way. But nonetheless, it's a kind of armature which you don't notice consciously, but which sort of creates a kind of framework in which we feel and see the action, see and hear and feel the action of the film. Now, I'm not the first to notice that a certain number of recent action films, especially in the last decade or so, or since the year 2000 or so, have started violating this. Um, you can find things online. There's uh, somebody named Matthias Stork who did an essay, a video essay, which you find online called Chaos Cinema, where he goes through, he shows you like a Sam Peckinpah action scene or a Steven Spielberg action scene, and then he shows you recent action scenes by directors like Michael Bay, Tony Scott, Paul Greengrass, and others, and he shows you that it's not really the same kind of editing. You have a fight scene where you have really rapid editing, you know, much faster, like a shot, new shot every half second or so, and where if you, if you actually slow it down and find it, it's totally chaotic. You don't really see the relation of one thing to another thing. Often they're from impossible camera angles, or, you know, they flip around like the characters, or, or various other weird things happen. It doesn't make sense spatially, and it's operating in a different way. Instead of trying to anchor us in a sense of space and time. It's trying to give us a series of blows to you know, knock us out in various ways, to give us a series of jolts. It's a very different aim for why you put together sequences in certain ways. And it's one, again, which must... I mean, the older continuity editing was affective in its because you know, we weren't necessarily strictly conscious of it, but we felt certain things without realizing it, which were important to our feeling about the movie. But now they want us to feel differently and instead of having that background to build up to what we know consciously, they almost want to get rid of, bypass the conscious part altogether and and just give us these visceral jolts from second mm -hmm. to second. Okay, so that's, I'm not the first person to n note that, and a lot of people found this very disturbing and, you know, see it as a decline in the art of cinema. I would like to say that it's not a decline, but a mutation. It's a different way of making films, and that's so that's number one. Number two, I see the extreme form of violating continuity rules in the interest of given, you know, momentary shocks in fight scenes in, you know, the Bourne films or the recent James Bond films or whatever is only scraping, is only one, one part of a general way in which even films in different modes and genres, which aren't giving you the high adrenaline fight scenes, are also, don't seem to care as much about the traditional way in which we're anchored in space and time by by continuity rules and in which we have different subliminal even we don't notice it consciously we have different subliminal reactions to or we're affected by the films in different ways so I'm trying to look at all of these at all of these and it's I mean different people do it in, in, in different ways I mean and I'm trying to write about some of the examples for instance um the late Tony Scott is one of the directors who's most credited or blamed for this new style of editing. But in fact, in his most... Ex well, I'm really interested in Tony Scott's film Domino, starring Keira Knightley, which is his most extreme film in this respect. And he's doing something which, you know, hasn't really been done before and was kind of extraordinary. And the way it is, if you try to analyze it, you know, basically an action which traditionally would have been maybe three or five shots to do, let's say, in 40 seconds. He'll have 35 mm -hmm. shots in 40 seconds, and sometimes he won't even be sure how to count the different shots because he'll have things overlaid on each other. He'll he'll have two images once, or he'll put text on the screen, or he'll change from, you know, a regular camera view to a view through a surveillance mm -hmm. camera, you know, which is in the location, and he's, he's sort of 
he's sort of chopping up time and space in these micro slices and then recomposing them in these very elaborate ways. And from a point of view of traditional film criticism, why is he doing this? It doesn't add any kind of traditional sort of meaning to the film to, to do the scenes in this elaborate, baroque, over-determined kind of way. But for me, it seems that he's changing. He's, he's groping towards a totally new form of experience to be conveyed through in the cinema. And he's, he's doing things in the same way. And so that's on a very micro level. On a more macro level, the film Domino has a totally outrageous, very very carefully put together as much as old Hollywood films, but in certain ways totally ridiculous and outrageous, the exaggerated kind of plot structure. It loops back on itself. It, um, it's done through elaborate series of, of flashbacks and, 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 and false starts and all kinds of things. I mean, again... Nothing in particular, which hasn't been done before, but he just he's done. He does it so much that it's like you feel a whole structure of the film is being composed in a different way, and not just in the action sequences, but you know, in every sequence. Um, so yeah, so that's 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 one example for me. Another example, which I talked about at this conference, is Harmony Corrine's film Spring Breakers, which came out earlier this year. And Spring Breakers has been much commented on, and often very brilliantly and rightly so for the various kinds of things it raises. I mean, it raises all kinds of political, social issues. Here you have these good girls gone bad. Some of them are actresses who used to be associated with Disney and with just very wholesome acting for kids, and now they're taking dr- They're playing characters who take drugs and 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 rob and, and, and commit armed robberies and massacres and stuff like that. But and a lot of people have commented on that. I've commented on the role of gender and of race and and all kinds of that in the film in various ways, often very smartly, but. This is, but what, but what's happening at level content is being matched or even overmatched by what's happening again, weirdly formally. Um, you have a film which is totally composed of beautiful, comp- beautiful visual compositions, but they're kind of irrational, beautiful compositions. They all have exaggerated lighting, which is, you know, even when it's a sunset, it looks kind of luridly oversaturated with color. And indoor scenes are definitely have you know, kind of lurid and strange lighting. He often has puts things in slow motion, which makes you see them differently. He often has multiple things going on on the soundtrack. Um, there's a soundtrack of throbbing electronic dance music, which has a very strong emotional effect, but it's it kind of, you know, it kind of coexists with the other things. There's other kinds of music on the soundtrack which intervene sometimes. There are, there's sometimes this kind of, um, what I called in the talk was, if you think of cognitive di- dissonance, this is affective dissonance. Mm-hmm. It's like cognitive dissonance, but it's not just that we have two ideas which contradict each other at once. It's that you have two feelings which are more than which contradict each other at once. You're seeing this violence and you're seeing this beauty. You're seeing this kind of sense of peacefulness or of wistfulness or of melancholy. At the same time, you're having this kind of violent, you know, assertiveness, like I'm in a video game and it's going to kill everybody because that's what you do in the video game and real life is no different. I mean, all these things are pulling at you at the same time and going on simultaneously. You'll have a narr- you'll have an over, you'll have a narration on screen which totally contradicts what you're seeing. And, you know, again, nothing per se has never been used before. They've all been used, but they're kind of put together and used systematically in a way that gives you a very, very strange effect, one which I don't think has been seen before. And I take this as another example of how, of what I'm calling post-cinema or post-continuity cinema, in which our whole sense reactions to the film or to the world of the film or to the characters in the film are being articulated in new ways and making us feel things in new ways, which I think are related to all the general technological and political, social, economic changes we've been living through. 
So one of the terms that um, came up, I think, when you were discussing domino or dominoes? Domino. Domino. Um, I think you started using the term intensity at some point. Um, yeah. And certainly, you know, when I was, when I was reading your um, post-cinematic affect book, um, yeah. I noticed words like that coming up a lot, right? Yeah. So some of the terms that come up are hyperbole, intensity, futuristic, mm-hmm. delirium, yeah. exaggeration, distortion. And what's also peculiar yeah. in a certain way, these terms exist alongside the use of the term reality, which itself mm-hmm. has become, you yeah. know, with reality TV, kind of strange and inflated. Yeah. And so these terms of, I don't know, the hyper, the exaggeration, does that have a, a, a special relationship to either um, post-continuity or post-cinematic cultures? Well, I mean, I think it has to do with, I, I think it is kind of, the cultural logic that we live under for both good and for ill. I mean, again, part of the in what's happened in the last twenty or thirty years more than ever more than before is I think uh, is one way in which because of all our computing devices and mobile phones and things like that, there's a saturation. Like, I mean, a lot of people complain there's no space where you can just relax. And you know, when people say they want to turn, they need to turn off the internet for a week and get away from it. Well, I don't want to get away from it because I feel that would be like not you know not seeing any friends for a week. Yeah. I mean you know it's, but that itself is the point. It's so part of it's so woven into the into the frame of our lives. It's not something else. And I mean it used to be, again, twenty twenty years ago I think a lot of us thought of the internet as being this separate world from the world of reality. So you know you go into a virtual world which existed prim- more primitively than they do now, and you you know be you'd sort of be playing a role and be a completely different persona than you were in real in so-called real life but i think now that's not feasible now the two totally interpenetrate there's no Mm -hmm. there's 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 no real difference or the different degrees so on one hand um rather than have separate realms what's imaginary and what's real they've all kind of fused it's again another way to put it it's an idea it's sort of the transition idea that images or moving images sort of are representations you have the reality in one place you have the representations in another place, but that's no longer the case because so much of our real interaction has to do with moving images and sounds and messages and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, again, I, 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 in a way this is enriching, in another way it may be exhausting because it's so super saturated. It certainly has something to do with the hyper-commercialization and that things which used to be taken for granted and freely available are increasingly becoming things you have to pay for and things that become privatized. I mean, the whole trend, I think, politically in the last 30 years under what's been called neoliberalism is to take everything which used to be a public or common good and privatize it. So, um, I mean, this has ranged from, you know, public universities, which, you know, everybody used to be able to attend to things which are now, they've become very expensive, they've become much mm-hmm. more restricted. Having to, I mean, the internet kind of seduces us because so many things are free, but we're always, in fact, paying for it in, in some other way. And then a lot of times the things do become monetized and and, and, and we're paying for it. I mean, that's things like, you know, Google, Facebook, and Twitter um, make money by extracting all the data from us. So in effect, we're paying for it by giving them all this information about ourselves, information that we may not even know ourselves, because the data has been compiled in this mm-hmm. massive way and then sold to advertisers. Um, you know, so, and this is something which is I think has been generally seen in our culture for the last 20, 30 years. Um, I think we've moved from, in, in specifically talking about movies, we've moved from movies which are sort of about that and a little content to movies which actually embody that in the way they're made. 
Mm-hmm. So you might have had, you know, a Philip K. Dick story, which becomes an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie where, you know, he, he doesn't, can't afford to actually go to Mars, so he buys the memories. So it's as if he, he, he's remembering something which he never actually did in the first place, but the memories are the same as if he had actually done it. That's kind of a theme or content, but it's almost like that's become the form of movies now instead of just their themes. Mm-hmm. So, and that's sort of the level I'm trying to get at. And so there's, on the one hand, there's this, let's say, ambiguity or inability to make a clear distinction between an event and its representation. It's not an inability to make a distinction, except the distinction doesn't really exist anymore mm-hmm. in, the, in the way we might think it used to be. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just that you can't... In other words, I don't think that it's a delusion on our part. I think yeah. that the world really has changed, I mean, changed to some extent. And then, mm-hmm. and so just to kind of hammer this again, so how does that collapse of sorts relate to um, this question of intensity that you come back to? Okay, again, intensity, well, there, there, there are a couple answers. One is that intensity has to do with what I'm calling saturation. I don't think any of this is stuff which never happened before, but it's maybe happened much, it's happening much faster, it's happening much more quantitatively. Mm-hmm. Sometimes, you know, as the old-fashioned saying was, but it's true, sometimes changes in quantity turn into changes in quality. Mm-hmm. Um, intensity also has a more particular sort of scientific and philosophical meaning. Intensive is contrasted to extensive. And it's like extensive has to do with extension in space. And some quality quantities are extensive, but some are intensive, meaning they're measured on a scale, but it's not really... I mean, it's like temperature. If the if it's, it's it's very different if it's thirty degrees and if it's five degrees. Okay, I'm using Celsius for instance. I'm in Europe right now, mm-hmm. and you know when you're very hot, when you're very cold. But it's not really a, it's a it's a kind of numerical measure. But it's not like you have five actual units of something when when it's five degrees, and you have thirty units of it when it's thirty degrees. It's it's an intensive quality quantity rather than an extensive quantity. It's not something which can be separated into units mm-hmm. which are. And so 10 degrees is not like having 5 degrees temperature twice. So that's kind of the um, scientific and philosophical meaning of intensity. And I think part of the idea is that an overly conceptual or overly rationalistic view of how media work would do it in terms of context, contents, which can be denumerated extensively. But if we're talking about affect, if we're talking about you know bodily feelings and waves of kind of modulating, continually modulating emotions, that's something which is more like temperature than like how many stones do you have on, on the table. Mm-hmm. So it's intensive, it's intensity, not extensivity. Not, mm-hmm. It's not ex- extensive, it's intensive. So, so if I understood correctly, this notion of, say, affect and intensity, and thinking about that as opposed to, say, a rational distance analysis, yeah. um, you know, it's linked... It's linked to uh, something you said earlier that, okay, uh, at this point we might recognize a distance Marxist ideological critique does not ju- do justice to the phenomenon we're dealing yeah. with because it's not about simply being better informed. Um, and well, it's not about simply about having false ideas, but by having yeah. feelings which come before ideas uh-huh. and which influence what ideas you yeah. then have. So if you're just talking about the ideas, you're not really talking about what generates the ideas uh-huh. and what holds the ideas. And um, again, this was, this was a topic that was raised at the conference um, by Lisa Okerval and others, also in reference to Bruno Latour, has critique run out of stream, mm-hmm. steam and how yeah. Foster and so on. Um, so if we're, if we're dealing with some type of, let's say, something like a post-critical moment, we're increasingly, we're not just trying to sort of 
make ourselves have a more better rational apprehension, but also understand some way in which we're embedded in these experiences and flows. Um, where do you see that as situating your work, right? Because on some level, it's clear reading your work and just listening to this conversation today, you have a lot of what we would typically call critical observations yeah. about contemporary politics, about contemporary economy. Um, so do you see your accounts of, say, post-continuity or post-cinematic cultures as also a form of critical engagement? Well, yeah, in a way, I'm reluctant to make too many claims for it in that sense because, again, um, I do have very strong political opinions, which are very much on the left, but I don't know, too many university professors have this idea that somehow their words are going are gonna to change the world, and I don't think that's very likely. I mean, I don't think... I, I hope that people like what I write, and I hope maybe someone will think about things differently because of it, but I don't believe that, you know, my words or ideas are somehow contributing to social change in any meaningful way. I mean, they aren't. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I believe in that social change is necessary, you know, for our survival, basically. But um, but I don't have this kind of moralistic, you know, therefore every waking moment of my life must be dedicated to working for the political change. I mean, you can't, I mean, not everybody can do that. Life mm-hmm. is... It's like, you know, I was very inspired by the Occupy movement a couple of years ago, but I have no desire, I had no desire to and did not, you know, go out and start living in a park in a, in a tent. I, you know, I try, I came to some rallies, I tried to support people, you know, who were doing that, but it's not something which, you know, everybody's going to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so in that sense, um, I don't want, I don't want to make those kinds of political claims. And the other thing is, um, you know, so, in many circles, especially the left, sort of aesthetics has a bad name because, you know, it's not contributed to change, you're just enjoying something or something like that. But, you know, I'm, I'm very much of a, an aesthetic kind of temper, which I mean, I think the kinds of enjoyments and which we get from art, well, enjoyments that we get from art and things like that, um, but which also occur in other aspects of everyday life, the kinds of feelings or affects we go through are very, are, are very important. And, you know, I mean, if I see, you know, if I wish for a future which would, you know, involve socialism or communism or something like that, it's not some idea that, you know, like they had in the old Soviet Union that everybody's going to be a heroic worker and, you know, do more productivity in the in, in the steel mill than was ever done before. It's much more the kind of thing like, say, Oscar Wilde writing in the 1880s about the soul of men under socialism saying it's only when people are freed from their material wants and worries that people can truly develop their own individuality and really, you know, explore ways to be different and unique and to sort of maximally realize your potentialities. I mean, again, it's 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 very clear that's so associated with money these days that only that you know you have to be rich in order to do anything else, but then the being rich becomes the important thing. So I mean it's the idea is not to you know, the idea is to be free of that or and which means we live in a world where which actually has a lot of abundance in terms of our economy, but the abundance is not distributed very well and a lot of it's mm-hmm. just thrown out or used or turned into pollution or things like that. Mm-hmm. So we're upset. This is the third situation where we've kind of solved the problem of, of striving for a li- you know that everybody can have a decent standard of living, and we don't institute it. We do at least grotesque things instead. Mm-hmm. So the kind of aesthetics I'm interested in is very much you know it's sort of like a goal of political change would be that people could devote more time and interest and energy to things like that, to the, those kinds of cultivation of emotions, cultivation of themselves, cultivation of experiences in certain ways. 
And again, it's a double-edged on many films and many works and science fiction novels, which there's a work on and many works of art are very grim because they're seeing, they're sort of depicting this sense we have where everything is accelerated, we're pushed into this, where we, you know, every moment we have to worry about our position and, you know, all this kind of stuff. But there's also another side to things like, you know, that that's why I'm not as negative as some tr more traditionalist film scholars are with these new film modes. They certainly reflect what we're going through socially now, but they also... You know, open up aesthetic possibilities, which you know, hopefully have some relation to what we might think of as a better kind of life. But again, it's not that I think my analyzing them and bringing these out is somehow utilitarianly connected to creating those that form of life. You know, so does that answer? What yeah, you're yeah, it does. Um, and then uh, another question I had. This is so usually we talk about on this program. We'll talk about. It concepts, we talk about culture or you know, whatever, cultural critique. Um, but actually, as a, a kind of step out of what we're usually doing, I have a question about um, the profession, right, in the university. Yeah, okay. Because I, it seems to me that that could also be related to some of your post-cinematic studies. Um, right, so you're a prolific blogger. Um, I used to be, I don't blog very much anymore, okay, unfortunately. So you, have a, you, have a, you have at least, let's say, a, a strong web presence. Yeah. Um, and presumably, you know, that's work that's typically not recognized mm -hmm. or compensated, you know, by your university. Yeah. Um, right now we're doing this podcast, which itself, you know, brings me great joy and pleasure and, and so on. But it's something that exists sort of in the space of electronic flows yeah. outside the traditional university. Um, and I think also is about a kind of space of appearance for critical activity that's not really in the exact same realm yeah. as the book or even the online journal, right? Yeah. So I just wonder if you think that some of your reflections on the post-cinematic um, also speak to changing conditions in knowledge production in the university or something. Well, I mean, that yes, I think so. I mean, it's a very complicated question because um, partly I just think that there are different modes in which you know intellectual activity or critical thought or whatever you want to call it takes on. I mean, when I started blogging, part of what was exciting to me about it was that I was writing in a different way than when I did academic writing. And in fact, I mean, now I tend more to write something academic and then put it on the blog if it's not going to be published right away. But but also I've taken things from the blog and turned them into academic writing, but that involves a lot of rewriting because it's a very different form of writing. So all four chapters of my book, post cinematic Affect, were originally blog entries. But it took me months to change each of those from a blog entry into um, a book chapter. I think there are different ways of talking and writing. When I give a talk, like the talk I gave at this conference, um, I hope it worked as a talk, but I can't, couldn't just go to the recording and write down word for word what I said and, and have that be a chapter of my book. This will eventually be, I hope, a chapter of my next book. But it, again, it will require a lot of rewriting. If I had written the, it out first, it might not have been so good as a talk because some things are more easily or better absorbed when you concentrate on a page than when you hear hear them spoken. So I just think there's, there's, there's a greater plurality of modes of, I mean, this goes back in the whole history of Western thought. I mean, you know, play, Socrates and Plato valuing or, you know, spoke speech over writing, you know, which is, comes up in Plato's dialogues and has been talked about, you know, from, ethic, from Aristotle to Jacques Derrida, people have talked about this. Um, so, I mean, then we have with more technology, with more Diversified technologies, we have now more ways of, you know, expressing, writing, thinking, discoursing, whatever you want to call it. 
And I think it's good that we have these plural modes. I don't think one is the final best mode or the only worthy one and the others aren't worthy. Again, it's it's both situational, different situations call for different forms of discourse and different um, people will have different ways in which their thought worked. I mean, it's always involved. Nobody ever has pure thought just in and of themselves. You always involve things in your environment, you know, and this is not just because of our current technologies, but it's always, you know, you spoke to other people, you read other things, you heard other things, your attention was called to something, you noticed something outside. Now, on the side of making discourses, as many recent philosophers, such as Andy Clark, have mentioned, a lot of our mental processes go on outside of our heads mm -hmm. through, you know, if you have a piece of paper, you write down what you're saying, you can write down things you wouldn't be able to memorize, and that allows you to elaborate a different kind of discourse than you would if you had to rely on your memory. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there are all kinds of ways in which different forms of thought or forms of expression take place. And so, I mean, I, um, I think, it, you know, expanding the different forms of discourse is a good thing in and of itself. In terms of academia, there are very special questions which have to do both with um, how academic evaluation takes place and with the changes in academia which are going on right now, which are mostly deplorable and have to do with money impinging on, on, on the way academic institutions work. But that's, you know, I could, we could go on for a whole hour just talking about that. Well then, uh, maybe instead we'll stop there. Um, let the uh, program itself go out and live its life on the interwebs. Mm -hmm. uh, so just to briefly recap, uh, we've been talking with Stephen Shaviro, uh, partially about his book, uh, Post-Cinematic Affect, um, but also about a lecture which has been uploaded along with uh, this podcast you're hearing now. Um, your website is... Called the Pinocchio Theory. Yeah. And this is uh, www.shaviro.com. Is that right? Yeah, slash capital B blog. Okay. So uh, you can find him there or even more likely just with a quick uh, Google of Stephen Shaviro Cinema, let's say. Or Stephen Shaviro Pinocchio. Stephen Shaviro Pinocchio. Um, so thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you. That's great. Enjoy Berlin. Thanks. Thanks.